We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. 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 Rock and roll is Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and today we have another great sideman who was witness to rock history, starting his career in the early 60s in Liverpool, playing the sax in his own band, Howie and the Seniors. He would befriend and help inspire a young quartet of Mersey Beat Rockers from Liverpool, whose name escapes me at the moment, and would spend the ensuing years recording and touring with T-Rex, Martha Hoople, The Who, Paul McCartney in Wings, and more. And at 83 years old, he hasn't slowed down one iota. The great Howie Casey will join us in a few minutes. But first, our co-host for the day hails from the ruins of an ancient mystical and faraway land called East Lime, Connecticut. No, too much, huh? He's an accomplished jazz rock and blues guitarist who's been a member of the world-renowned band 8 to the Bosch. Shared stage with James Cotton, Pine Top Perkins, and most impressive of all, my band Black and White. And he and his wife also started the String Theory School of Music, which we're going to hear a lot more about later. Welcome, my good friend, Chris Lee. Hey, Don. Hello, Chris. Hello. How the hell are you? I'm well. Glad to be finally talking with you. Been uh, enjoying uh, checking out some of your podcasts recently, listening to some of the things you've done previously. You're, the one with Linda Ronstadt was amazing. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate it. I wish people could have heard our little uh, pre-show talk. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's another podcast. That's, that's another something. podcast for another day, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, seriously, you played with Black and White. That must have been just a thrill for you. You know what? I sense a little being facetious in your voice, but <laughs> just a little. Uh, but to be honest with you, no, it was, it was actually a lot of fun. I actually I got to meet obviously you and Kevin, but um, playing with Mike LaBelle and Dave Howard, you know, um, it was it was fun to sit down and, and hang out with those guys on those gigs as well. And uh, uh, that was one of the neat parts of the band, you know, that I enjoyed was you know like having some different people to to play with and meet on some of those gigs what i always enjoyed being that we did this night after night we always use different front men and yeah. um and you were certainly one of our favorites in the stable of people we used you brought a lot of new material to the show that we otherwise wouldn't have done um uh, none of yeah. which i remember right now but um i remember thinking that like this is great you know it's a different everyone has a different approach and it can be kind of boring playing with the same people every night for five years ten years in our case, well, almost thirty years. Yeah, I, I appreciated that. It was it was definitely fun for me. Like, yeah, there was a couple of times where I had to just be the guitar player and back up Dave and have to you know get to know his his repertoire a little bit. Right. And, uh, uh, so you know, it, it, yeah, the experiences were different depending upon like who you had on the gig. Sometimes it would just be me singing and playing the guitar, and and of course that was fun. Yeah. No, I I, I liked the whole concept uh, that you and Kevin put together it made for an interesting evening of playing and uh obviously kept you guys on your toes oh god yeah well let me ask you this what did you enjoy more or what did you find more fulfilling as a trio where you're covering so much ground or did you like kind of just sitting back and letting the front man a singer do his thing and you're just kind of um i i gotta be honest with you uh, both things do different things for me as a as a guitarist and as a musician um i have spent a lot of time being a side man um some of those gigs i was just playing the guitar or maybe singing a little bit of backup vocals that was a very a very comfortable sort of position to be in but uh, 
having said that, uh, over the years, I, I did work a lot on trying to become a better singer and a better front person and, um, and trying to be the whole package, you know, and um, I, I love being in that role, too. And I've, I think I've grown into that more over the years. As we all know, you know, we, we all have to continue to work out our craft. That's been something that has been a challenge for me to be a better singer and a better frontman. Well, you spent a lot of time with a, a, just a great band out of the New England area. And I know they, they go all over the country, probably all over the world, I'd imagine. Eight to the bar. Tell me how you got involved with them. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting uh, opportunity. I had heard that Cynthia was looking for a new guitarist and singer. Up to that point, I had a version of my band uh, had been out playing and we had made a CD and um, that particular lineup was trying to close. A to the Bar, you know, is a, is a, a venerable organization, you know, as a, as a band. Cynthia is a great band leader. I had seen the band many times um, and I wanted to try to, have an opportunity to try out. So I called up Greg Piccolo. Who, the room uh, full of blues. Formally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I said to Greg, I said, I'd like to get in touch with Cynthia. Could you give her a recommendation or would you be a recommendation for me? I should say with, with Cynthia. Yeah. And he said, of course. So he, he gave her a call and said, yeah, I can vouch for Chris. So I went, I took the audition and uh, fortunately I won the audition and started in with them. And I have to say that it was a tremendous amount of work to get up to speed to play with that band. I mean, I have to, I think it was probably the most challenging professional gig that I ever had. Just a very, very, deep repertoire of not only their original music that you know again you have to remember they started the band in 75 so i didn't know that know, i didn't know they went back that far yeah i mean and the band has you know certainly changed and turned over the personnel over the years the one constant being cynthia yeah you know, it's really her band and um and so i you know i had to learn all of you know a lot of original material going back decades um in addition to being able to play a lot of the R&B and swing and blues covers that they do. And uh, they also do ballroom events. Uh, so, you know, we, we had, you know, uh, sort of their legacy stuff that I needed to know. Yep. And also to be able to function sort of playing a lot of the professional repertoire you would do for swing dances or weddings or, you know, whatever else. So I would say, you know, I had a month to pull it together it would have been enough if I had just had to learn all the guitar stuff and be able to play it. It, it was, I had to sing a third of the lead vocals and then I had to sing a lot, all backup vocals on everything else. You sing um, that much lead. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Cynthia was, you know, singing a third of the lead stuff. Uh, Brenna Jones sing another third. Uh, and then I had all of the male lead vocals. Well, actually, Michael Crescini was the bass player at the time, and he he sang a few leads too. But I I was I was coming in for uh, Tommy Whalen. Tommy had been in the band for I think twenty four twenty five years, and um, he had left the band for a while. And so I was kind of like in, not only having to fill his shoes, but also try to adapt some of his repertoire. And it was a stretch for me on some of it, you know, certainly vocally, you know, because I had sang lead vocals in my own band, but I'd never really been hired by anybody to be the lead singer in their band. Yeah. Know? And Cynthia, I have to say, you know, she doesn't accept anything but perfection. And I really admired that, although it was hard, but she was very encouraging too. You know, she was like letting me know that, you know, that I was cutting it. And, yeah. And, and, 
I think she could tell that initially I was a little intimidated by taking on that role. But, um, you know, my, I guess my guitar playing more than made up for the fact that I was, I was trying to step into somebody else's shoes vocally. Sure. And, um, and, uh, that's and, a tough you know, position for anybody to just come into a band where they had an established player 25 years, you said. In it's that tough. range, I mean, he, he'd been in, I think he'd been in the band, out of the band, in the band. And then after I left, he came back. Yeah. Um, and he was in the band for another year or so. And How long were you in? I was in the band for a year. I ended up doing it for one year, mostly because it came to conclusion that I could not do the travel that was required of me at that point in my life. I, I at the time, you know, my daughter was middle school age. Most of the people in the group were single. The exception being Cynthia and Colin, Colin, her husband, uh, who's the sax player in the band and also just an amazing, yeah, he's an amazing musician. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't he on uh, Moondance album with Van Morrison? Yeah. Colin has had a, a, a really amazing career. Yeah. He, he played the flute solo on Moondance. Yep. He's a fine tenor sax player. I mean, that's his primary instrument. The guy has all of the R&B and soul chops and he can still rip some stuff off and sound like Sonny Rollins too. And he's played, he played with James Cotton. Um, he was on the road with him for years and, uh, he did a lot of stuff with, uh, Matt Murphy and the Shabu All-Stars. Um, he's a very humble guy. I, I know he was on the road with the Stones. I think he played with Etta James when, uh, some girls tour. I think. Really? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Does that um, intimidate you at all playing with somebody with that kind of pedigree? I, I love it. I, and I know, you know, that, that you feel that way too. Yeah. You know, you're getting, getting on a gig with somebody who's got that pedigree. That yeah. You want to show them that you're, you, you belong there. You right. Know, that's part of, you know, like, and, and that we're peers, you know. And right. I don't know. I always look at every single gig as the last gig. So I always put my best foot forward. And, um, and, and who knew that our last gig would be our last gig this year? Yeah. Well, last I year. Know. I, I know. How are you making out with that? I mean, it must be driving you crazy. You know, I, I did have some opportunities over the summertime to get out and play a couple, you know, outdoor things with my band. Uh, we probably played a half a dozen times this summer. Oh, God bless you. We had one gig, still went through, but everybody else canceled. Because I usually do all the bookings for the summertime, usually around March, April. That's when everybody starts calling and it becomes what date's available. Well, obviously, by then, the news broke. Everybody said, I don't think we're going to do it this year. Especially in the summer, we rely so heavily on the outdoor gigs, you know, city gigs, you know, festivals. We jokingly call it the gazebo tour. (laughs) But it's fun and it's good money and, you know, it's it's great money. And it's, you know, it's it's easy, 90 minutes in and out, you know. I think a lot of the profile of the work that we used to do, uh, and this is less about the pandemic and more about just the shifting, you know, state of of gigging. You know, a lot of it is earlier, you know. But the audience is aging. Yeah. It's that simple. I mean, let's face it, with few exceptions, we're not playing to 20-year-olds. Yeah, the days of 10 to 2 are basically over. And so, yeah, you know, I I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you know, I'd rather be wrapping it up, driving home at 11 o'clock. Oh, sure. You know, than driving home from Maine at 3 (laughs) a.m. Especially in a blizzard. I mean, we've had more tales of breaking down on I-95 South, middle of a February storm. It's But when you're a kid, you don't care. Hey, it's part of the excitement, the allure of it. And heading toward 50, you're like, nah, I want to be home drinking coca, watching, uh, you know, <laughs> CNN or whatever. You know, that's it. It's a different, you know, and the audience, like I said, is getting older. 
I've been saying that since when I was a kid. I said, geez, you know, when the baby boomers retire, they're not going to want to sit down, listen to Lawrence Welk. They're still going to want rock and roll because that's what they grew up on. So there are new gig opportunities coming up. As you get older and you've been at the game for a long time, you, you develop a new appreciation for the role that you play, you know, and, and other people's lives and interest in your community. Right. You know, like it's, yeah, you might have started off, you know, with, with an idea of what your music career would be and where it would take you. And, and sometimes it takes you other places. Like you, you, you develop this appreciation for like the power of music. You're willing to drive through the snowstorm to get there and set up and drag your stuff in and, and perform. Sure. And that feedback, you know, you get from people is sometimes, you know, the sustenance. So when the bread is not, when the bread is thin, sometimes it really is about, wow, you know, I touched somebody or I, you know, I made somebody happy tonight. I saw some happy faces in the audience, you know. I mean, you know, that's their thing, you know, like, you know, we're joking around about being in our fifties, you know, but these guys are setting. Hey, still 49 here, still 49. Don't rush me. Okay. You're almost 50. You'll be getting your AARP card soon. You son of a bitch. <laughs> you had to go with the AARP card. <laughs> well, I've, 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 got, I've gotten my magazine in the mail, so it's not that bad. <laughs> It'll be all right. Yeah, all right. It's all right. You'll have something. You'll have a little kindling for the, you know. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> so I'm inspired by hearing about musicians, you know, that like are out there playing right to the end. Uh, that, that are still, I mean, I'm still hungry for music. I want to play. You know, I love playing the guitar. I mean, like, look at the Stones. You know, they were on tour before this all happened. But yeah, it makes me feel good to know that Howie Casey is still pumped to, to get out there and do gigs at 83 years old.
Our guest today is a rock and roll saxophone player from Liverpool whose band The Seniors was one of the first to gain success in that seaport city, eventually going to Hamburg, Germany alongside another group of Mercy Beat rockers who would go on to change the world. As an in-demand session player, he played on records by T-Rex, Chuck Berry, Wilson Pickett, The Who, ABC, and most famously Paul McCartney and Wings, for which he also toured as a member of their horn section. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Howie Casey. Hello, Howie. Hi, Don. Hi. Yeah, good to be here. How are you yeah, good doing? to be here. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit um, ruffled at the moment because I, I don't really get together very much with computers. I don't like them, you know. So I don't blame but, hey, you. I'm here. So I know. <laughs> we were supposed to be here last week, but I know you're a bit under the weather. Feeling a little bit better now? Yeah, well, it's one of those things. I'm, I'm quite old. and uh, Aren't we all? Yeah, well, I am, really, you know. <laughs> so uh, the thing was, I got this cold thing, and you know COVID's going about. And of course. So I got the cold thing, the itching up the nose, the back of the throat, I could hardly talk, and that's why I couldn't make the interview last week. Well, you're you know? here now, and we're glad to have you. Where are you out of right now? Um, I live in a place called Poole, which is on the south coast of England, near a, a place called Bournemouth. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah. They have a big festival, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine that you're playing the saxophone predates rock and roll. Well, I don't think it actually predates rock and roll because rock and roll was going well before even Bill Haley. You know? Well, uh, you're I, right. You're right. The yeah. world domination, like 1955. Yeah, I didn't start playing, to be honest, uh, until halfway through 1953. I, I loved listening to saxophone players. And, uh, you know, at the time, there was lots of jazz and big bands, etc. I always picked out and hooked up with the sax players, you know. Right. I like that. At that time in 53, some friends of mine, none of us could play, but we decided we're going to put a band together. Anyway, one of the guys said, I'm going to play the drums. I went, oh, shit, because I wanted to play the drums. <laughs> I think everybody does, you know. I said, okay, I'll get a sax. And another guy, he got a trumpet. And needless to say, the guy who claimed the drums, he never bought a kit. The guy who, uh, he did get a trumpet, the other guy, and he just learned to play Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White, Press Prada. Press Prada, from, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from years ago. <laughs> And that's all he learned, is the beginning. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and that, that was it. That was a sum, sum total of his trumpet playing, you know? Yeah. But I sort of persevered, and it was getting to the time where, in those days, you had to go in the army. So, 55, I was due to go in, by which time I'd learned a bit. I'd had quite a few lessons and whatnot. And I aimed to get in the band, the military band, which I did. I spent three years, from 55 to 58, in Germany, funny enough. Mm. 
So during that period, of course, I met up with all the other musos in the band and there were quite a lot of us younger ones who liked jazz. And then, of course, we were listening to rock and roll. And for me, the major people, I suppose, Little Richard and uh, uh, Fats, Domino, etc. And all the saxophone solos on, on those records, that they got me. I thought, oh, yeah, that's how I want to play. It's that New Orleans right. uh, style of saxophone playing, you know. So that was brilliant. So then I picked up another saxophone player, so all American, uh, mostly black American players. Like, like King Curtis. Well, King Curtis a little bit later, yeah, but sure, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of names. I forget things. What's the guy who did the Pink Panther? Uh, uh, Mancini? Well, Henry Mancini wrote it, but the sax player, um, oh, dear, oh, just shows it. I'm 83 years of age and I forget everything, you know. Um, well, at least you knew it. I don't even know who the guy is. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll remember it in a moment or two. But all those guys, yeah. you know, as you said, King Curtis, just listens to their styles. And I thought, yeah, that's for me. I'd really like that. I still today like jazz, but uh, those the way they played, the feel and the soul they had in their playing. Uh, a little later, uh, Ray Charles, you know, Fatter Newman, I've remembered his name. Oh, yeah. And I loved all these guys. They were so, so good, you know, sure. at what they did. Yeah, so from there, I tried... And when I came out of the army after doing the three years, I was always practicing and trying to get that thing together. Never really did. Uh, but uh, I came out and I went back to Liverpool, you know. And, uh, of course, the rock scene in, I suppose, 58, it was just starting. So it's, it's a long story. My dad, he was a electrical and radio TV engineer, and he used to repair in these dance halls the tannoy systems, you know, the sound systems. Yeah. You know, he said, uh, I, I do this place called Wilson Hall in Liverpool. The guy who runs it, a guy called Charlie Mack. Uh, I was talking to him the other day and told him about you, uh, that you played the sax. On a Saturday night, he had a, a resident band there called the Rhythm Rockers. And he said that if you'd like to go down and uh, sit in with them, uh, you're welcome. So I did. This is a great band. Uh, it was like three saxes, keyboards, bass, uh, drums. A uh, couple of singers. I don't think there was a guitar player, if I remember well. But anyway, uh, I sat in with them, and uh, that was wonderful. The drummer, it was a guy called Frank Bibley. He was the leader of the band. And he was the best drummer I'd heard at that time, and still afterwards, because he joined the seniors later on. Yeah. Uh, he was the best drummer in Liverpool. You can forget Ringo. You can forget all those guys. This guy, was he was so good, you know. Yep. He was slightly older than the rest of us, you know, but... And, you know, he thought he was older. He was only in his 30s. That's a big difference yeah. when you're in your 20s. Well, it, well, I mean, the Beatles and those guys, I mean, they were 17, 18, yeah. you know? Yeah, right, right. But they used to come and watch the seniors in the dance halls we played in the Holly Oak and Blair Hall. Paul and John, they told me that and said, yeah, we used to come and stand. And I, I sort of remember it. They'd lean on the stage looking up at us, you know, us all sort of yeah. farted about on stage, yeah, you know? Right. Started off as Derry and the Seniors and would soon be yeah. renamed Howie and the Seniors. Talk about how that was... Well, uh, yeah, well, that was because we got the extra singer in. But Derry and the Seniors was a sort of nick of Danny and the Juniors. Ah. We were looking for a name, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that worked okay, you know? And Freddie came into the band, and he had the offer of a recording contract with Fontana Records. We got down there to do a sort of audition rehearsal in front of a guy called Jack Bavistock, who was head of Fontana. Mm -hmm. He liked the band. He said, yeah, great. He said, but we can't have Derry, Freddie, and the Seniors. He said to me, you're the band leader, so we'll put your name in front. So it was Howie Casey in the series. That's yeah. how it came about. Yeah. That's the first LP, Twist at the Top. That yeah, correct? that's right. <laughs> yes. And, and I know I've, I've read this a million times. 
people falsely believe that the Beatles were the first Liverpool band to get a record out. No, 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 no. That honor goes to you. Yeah, well, well I suppose, yeah, uh, dubious honor. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, the thing was that we were the first Liverpool band to get a proper big recording contract, you know, with because I think there were a lot of bands, they went and did, uh, there was a, a little recording studio in Liverpool and it was called Phillips, but it's nothing to do with Phillips, the big right, uh, right. studio. And you'd go in there and you'd, you know, knock out a couple of tunes and pay a few quid. And it was like that. No, the seniors were the first to have a, a major label. Beatles followed that same trajectory that you did. You kind of started yeah. Liverpool and yeah. went to Germany. Well, we went out there as Derry and the Seniors. And the reason we got that gig was uh, Alan Williams, who was a sort of well, promoter-type person in Liverpool, had a couple of clubs. He arranged auditions with an impresario uh, called Larry Pons, uh, who wanted to come to Liverpool and to look at some of the bands, the local bands, because he had a summer season in a place called Blackpool, mm-hmm. and he had all, all these singers in his stable. Uh, you know, there's Marty Wilde, Dickie Pride, Georgie Fame. They all had names like that. You he, would, know? he would take these kids. Was he kind of like a Simon Cowell of his day, maybe? I don't know if that's yeah, a, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Not, no TV stuff. But no, no. Yeah. But he, he would just t- take these wide-eyed kids and rename yep. them and repackage them, and but it was all his doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I, as far as I re- remember and was told at the time, all these guys who were, they were on TV at the time. They're, these singers who were Billy Fury uh, and so on, they were on a wage of 20 pounds a week. Right. He coined it, yeah. Larry Pons, you know. Yeah. That, but anyway, he came to Liverpool uh, and Billy Fury was with him at the auditions at a place called the Wyvern Club, the drinking club. So there's Billy Fury and we'd never seen a rock star, you know. There he was, he looking moody, lean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sort of su- sub Elvis, you know. Yeah. We all got up and did our, our thing. We acquitted ourselves well. The Casino Casino was a, later became the big three. They were there, they did well. I don't know, Roddy Storm and one or two of the bands. 
And then there was this other young band we none of us had seen, you know. They were called the Silver Beatles. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, it was their turn to get up and do something. And they didn't have a drummer. So there was scouting around for a drummer. And uh, the guy from Castle Casanova was Johnny Hutchison. He said, okay, I'll play with you, you know. Uh, so they got up and they did their thing. They leapt about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I can say. Because <laughs> n- n- none of us there, but we, we weren't really old hands, but we'd been at it a few years, you know. And uh, they think, well, okay, didn't even think about it twice, you know. Right. But anyway, as it turned out, uh, the, we had the gig. Alan, Alan Williams said, yeah, you've got one of the gigs back in one of the singers like Duffy Power or whatever. And uh, we're all oh, brilliant. You know, I'm going to go to Blackpool for the whole summer and so on. And then a few weeks later, he rang me up and said, how are you? He said, uh, it's been cancelled. You know, you know, your job is gone. Uh-huh. You know, so it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Now, what are we going to do now? So we went down, Derry and I went down to the club, sort of cornered him, Alan. He's a slippery character, I thought. But anyway, mm. we caught him and he said, what are you going to do about this, man? Some of the band have given up their jobs. He said, oh, what's okay? Uh, look, look, we can go down to London to the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, which is quite famous at the time. So we're all naive, you know, young. So we said, yeah, okay. So about a week later, we all piled in two cars, drove down to London, and got to the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. And I never trusted Alan. And he said, I'll just go in and make sure everything's all right. And I said, yeah. So I went with him and Derry. And uh, of course, he hadn't arranged anything. Oh. So we got in there. And so Alan said, I've got a band here. We've come all the way from Liverpool. Would they be able to play? Because downstairs in the cellar, uh, that's where the band played, you know. And this is in the daytime. So he looked at us, sort of a bit sorry for us. And he said, well, uh, there's no money in it. And he had some fly-blown cake under a, a sort of plastic thing, you know. And he said, well, you can have a piece of cake each, you know. I said, oh, yeah, br- brilliant, you know. <laughs> you gave up your jobs for a piece of cake? <laughs> Almost. We had a stroke of luck uh, because we got downstairs and it was our turn. There was other bands playing and it was our turn to get up and it was announced there. And from Liverpool, uh, Derry and the Seniors. So we got up and I think we did half an hour, three quarters of an hour. And then uh, unbeknownst to us, in the audience was a German guy called Bruno Koschmieder. Oh, great. He had a club called the Kaiserkel. And so anyway, uh, Alan came up to us after we'd finished. Oh, he said, Grace, he said, I've got this guy, Bruno Koschmieder. He wants to book you to go to Germany, you know. And I thought, oh, great, you know, that'll do it. And so that day, that afternoon, we signed a contract. And that's how we got it. It was 1960 then. And uh, so off we went after a few weeks, you know. Mm. And I'd said to Alan and uh, Bruno, who spoke very little English, I said, uh, don't forget, we're going to need work permits, visas, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. So we're all excited again. And then off we went. They did get us the tickets. We went by train down to the south of England to Harwich and then a boat over to the Hook of Holland. And then we had to get a train from there, which would take us into Germany. And everything went smoothly until we got to the border with Germany. The German police came on and they're saying, uh, okay, that's passports, you know. So I said, oh, showing the passports. And then he, this copper, he looked up and he, on the, uh, the shelves above on the train, all the, the gear was there, amps. There's drums, saxophones, you know, stuff like that. And he said, what's this for? And we said, well, um, when we go on holiday, because he asked us what we're doing, he said holiday, you know. He said, when we go on holiday, you know, we like to play sometimes. He said, oh, yeah, off. So they chucked us off the train. So from that point, obviously, they'd not got us work permits or visas. 
uh, we're standing on the platform and we're all dejected. Says, Here we go. We'll have to go back home. Tails between our legs and all that. One of the coppers must have thought, I took pity on us. And he, he said, look, he said, have you got a phone number? Uh, they asked us where we were going. He said, Hamburg. He said, have you got a telephone number that we can use? So I said, yeah, here it is, you know. So I gave him the phone and he rang up the Kaiser Keller. And then he must have got a reassurance from either the manager there or from Bruno uh, that uh, they would sort out all the work permits and everything. It's all in order. So when he, the next trainer came through, he said, okay, boys, get on it, have a good time. And that's how it, it went. Boy, did you get lucky. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like one of those touch and go. Another little thing, which is quite funny now, but at the time it wasn't. I mean, we'd never seen anything like the Reaper Barn and Grosser Freiheit. It's just clubs, 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 all lights. Even in the day, you know, the lights mm. were flashing, you know, pictures of girls hardly got any clothes on and all that yeah, sort wasn't of stuff. Yeah, was that like a red light district? Oh, yeah. Big time, big time. You know, there was legal brothels. Yeah. Uh, uh, clubs of all types, restaurants, of course, cinemas. We got uh, a couple of cabs from the station and got to, it was in the Gross of Rye Heights, the Kaiser Keller. We get outside Kaiser Keller and we're looking and there's a big poster, about six foot by three foot. And it's Aus England. The seniors, big letters, knit with them and it said singer <gasps> Derry yeah and Derry said what the F in yeah. hell's this <laughs> yeah he said singer what's that and of course I said no I don't because of being in Germany in the army I said no I think it means Negro you know right. which wasn't very good but right. Yeah, yeah. right that's better yeah right yeah no. so yeah. that calmed him down a bit so that was the start of it by the way, every single one of us, within a day or two days, we had girlfriends, the whole oh, nine yeah. yards. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right, right. yeah, yeah. So for us young fellas, it was like, yeah, you know, kids in a sweet shop. Anyway, we'd been playing a couple of weeks and I got a letter because there was no phones and things in those days. So I got this letter from Alan Williams and saying he was sending over, by the, which time they'd become the Beatles, to Germany, you know. And I wrote this letter back. I suppose it's become quite famous now. Just said, I don't send that bum band over here. They'll ruin the scene, you know? Because you're thinking of the audition, Larry Pons. Right. Exactly, exactly so. So anyway, it was a fate accompli. They were coming. That's it. I mean, nothing against the guys, you know, but uh, we thought, oh, this is going to be crap. One night we're playing there and they turned up into the Kaiser Keller with their cases and everything, you know. And uh, so, you know, we got chatting to them and they thought they were going to play in the Kaiser Keller. And uh, they were disabused at that very, very quickly by a guy called Willy Limper. And he was what they called the Geschäftsführer. Uh, he was the manager of the Kaiser Keller. Yeah. He said to them, no, 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 boys, you play in the Indra up the road. So they were disappointed. And uh, we had our bedding and so on. We, where we slept was in the Kaiser Keller. It was underground, you know. So you can imagine after a whole night of into the early hours, of smoke, drink, booze, whatever, you know. Yeah. The place was airless. It stunk. We didn't have a, there was no bathing facilities. We had one sink, you know, which was in the ladies' toilet, which wasn't too fragrant either. Yeah. That was what we had to wash and clean ourselves in, you know, each day. But again, we were more or less like the Blues Brothers, you know, we were funky, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, uh, the Beatles, they were installed in a cinema up the road called uh, Bambi Kino. And uh, that wasn't much better because they didn't have uh, anywhere to clean themselves, really. Uh, we had a break one night, a couple of nights later, and we went up, let's see how they're getting on, you know. And we went in, and of course, Pete Best was on drums by this time. Yeah. And uh, Stuart Sutcliffe on yeah. bass. Uh, they 
improved, you know, 200%. Uh, the, and they, they were doing well, you know, really good. Uh, but it was only a small bar that had a little stage. And I think it had been used as a bar with a stripper every so often, you know. Right. And it was full of blokes, you know, sitting there swigging a beer and so yep. on, you know. Yeah, But they were doing okay because they used to finish quite a bit before us because we go on to the early hours, you know. Uh, so they started coming into the club. They'd get up with us and we'd jam together, you know. Sure. At one point, uh, because when we were playing, we'd do three quarters of an hour, say, 45 minutes on. There'd be a jukebox to go on for 15 minutes, then we'd be back on again. And during that 15 minutes, the Germans were very funny about it. If you stop playing the live music, they start to wander out. So he said, we can't have this. We must have music all the time. So I said, okay. He said, I have an idea. And what he, his idea was, he split my band of seniors in two. It was a six-piece band. And he took a guitarist and uh, the drummer, and they were in one band. And then the keyboard player, Derry, me, and he took Stuart of the Beatles. Uh, they got a German drummer to play with us. And that was how it went. And uh, they didn't like it. We really didn't like it because that meant all the material we got. We had to, we had to sort of get loads of material. I'm in a band and I'm just thinking, hearing you saying that, how, yeah. how the hell is that going to work? Which band's yeah. going to play which material? And, you know. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing was you had to, the, the whichever band was on, they'd be playing their last number. And the, the, the other band would come on and start playing that number to, you know, and they wander off, you know. Oh, jeez. But they're all gangsters, those guys. You didn't mess with them, you know. No. The, you said Stuart played with you, so help me yeah. maybe dispel a rumor or maybe confirm it. Mm. How was he as a bass player? Well, well, yeah, it was okay, because most of the stuff we played anyway, 12 bars or, or simple three, four chords, you know. So he's okay. You know, he's fine. And the keyboard player, he'd, he'd fill in a lot of stuff, you know. So yeah. I know there's all these the things about... He wasn't dreadful. There's no doubt about that. He was... I, th I think he was John's friend, and it was the art thing that got them together. Right. And I think I think that was, you know, well, you play the bass, and you know, he can be in the band, right. that type of thing. Right. But but yeah, he wasn't a, a star player. None of us were really in those days. But you that's know, just it. You know, how much yeah. worse was he than say, you know, Paul? You know, well, at the time, yeah. yeah I mean, Paul, I, I would reckon he was the best musician in the Beatles, of course. You know, right. uh, he, he taught the others chord sequences and so on. You know, but then he used to take go to my guitarist Griff and ask Griff how things went and how he did things. Griff, you know, he's a nice guitar player at the time. You know, and uh, so they weren't that brill, if you see what I mean. If my guitar player could tell them how the sequence or how he did solos, how he bended notes, right. And, all that sort of stuff, you know. But they soaked it all up, so that's that's the important yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, how uh, how, how would you compare the material that the seniors were doing with the material that Beatles were doing at the time? About the same, really. Really? <laughs> yeah, well, it was all nicked from America, you know. It was all, all the Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you know, it was all that stuff, you know, Fast Domino. Yeah, so it was generally... It was like in Liverpool at that time. You know, one band would go on to play a set and the next band would come up and play the same set, more or less, you know, until they started writing material themselves.
So now at some point, the Beatles break big in the UK, 1963. Yeah. How does that affect what you were doing? Well, not a lot because uh, we put our first record out and we made it in 61, but I think it came out in 62. That, okay, that was going fine. We were touring Britain and so on, getting radio plays and blah, blah. And then I left the band. <laughs> oh. Well, what it was, as you did in those days, I was going out with a girl in Liverpool and we got pregnant. And of course, I had to get a proper job, yep. you know, at that yep. point. Yeah. And get married and all that. So I just said to the guy, sorry, man, I'm, I'm out. And so I stopped playing. I got a proper job, as they say. By which time, the Beatles were starting to really make waves in Liverpool, you know. Because yeah. we, we used to play the Cavern just like them. We, in fact, we played the – I think the Seniors was the first rock band to play the Cavern because it was a jazz club before that, you right. know. But anyway, uh, so – and I could – listen to the radio and I could hear Jerry and the pacemakers and the, you know, the Beatles and all these bands from Liverpool, you know, uh, you know, doing uh, things on the radio, etc. And I used, to, I used to think, geez, what did I do? I you know? know? Well, obviously you got back into the music thing. Well, again, as I say, I was doing my job. I was managing a shop. It's a friend of mine. He was in a band called King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. Right. And they were the house band at the Star Club and uh, they had a break and he, he came over to my house and he said, look how he said there, there's a band called Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers. They come to the Star Club every so often. And he said, they got two saxes. And said, we'd love to have a sax player if you're interested, you know. And I, I, I almost kissed him. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm there. And so that's how it came about. I just, one day, I said to my wife, look, I'm going uh, over to Hamburg. The money's better anyway than I'm earning here. Mm. And uh, What year so- are we talking? About 63, something like that, yeah. Now, he was yeah. famous for having recorded some of the Beatles shows at the start. Oh, yeah, club. yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that all went on anyway. There's uh, a guy called Adrian Barber. He was with the big three. He was the guitarist, but he got the job as a sound man at the Star Club. So he recorded every damn thing, all the bands that went on there, the American bands, whatever, you know. Yeah. And I think King Size himself... He, I, I don't know if he actually got it off Adrian, but he did the same sort of thing. Nobody was saying, you can't do that. Well, of course you know? not. No. No. So, not until yeah. the lawyers well, yeah. get involved. Yeah, That's right. At some point, Tony Visconti comes into your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that was quite a few years later. D- Domino's broke off. I, I was back in Liverpool. Then I went down to London because that was the only place you could make it in the business. Tony Visconti, he rang me up a couple of times because I played on a few records, you know, and things. And uh, he said that, uh, would I go and do some tracks for him? And it was in his house. Uh, they had a little recording studio. He was married to Mary Hopkins at the time. And uh, so I used to go in there. He played tracks. And he said, a bit there and a bit there. And I said, okay, I'll do a bit there and there. Anyway, a little time later, he said, how you got a session here? It was in a big studio. He said, it's uh, for a band called uh, T-Rex. Mm. Uh, we'd, we'd like you to come and do something. You know, so... I said, okay, you know, it's a session. You get money. <laughs> That's what's That's it, about. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, went down there. I put down a couple of tracks. And uh, <sighs> it's a difficult one for me, this, because I liked Mark Boland very much. He was a sharp cookie. Yeah. You know? He had it all sorted. He had his own publishing. He employed a manager to do things for him. Mm-hmm. And, and things like that. But the style of his music, I, I wasn't altogether sure what, but, but the thing was, it went down a stone. I worked with him for a while. I went on, on the road with him for a while, and I did a few tracks with him, as you know. You did 20th Century Boy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, from the recording sessions, it was easy peasy. You know, I'd go in, listen to the track, and Tony would tell me what he'd like and so on. And then I'd, I'd play it, and hopefully it was okay. And then I'd, I'd get my money. Would Mark a- be there, or was his bits already recorded? No, no, he'd, he'd be there. A lot of the band would turn up as well, you know. It's, yeah. uh, it's okay, you know. And then uh, there was a tour came up, and they asked me would I go on the tour. And I did that. We toured Britain. There's a little anecdote there, if you want to hear it. Please. Yeah, well, you know, Mark is a showman, right? Of course. And, and he had this thing at that time. The band would be on stage in darkness, if you like, but he would come on in the dark and he had this huge star was made. It was like flat on the stage. I've seen the, it. You've seen it? Yeah. And he'd come on and he'd lie on it with his guitar on his chest. And then as we started playing, up it come, all lights would go on. He had the stage, but then there was a little piece out front where he'd jump on to and start playing. Right. You know, that was great. It worked terrific. You know, it was sort of pushing, you know, this, this start, the mechanics on the start. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> This particular night, I think it was in Newcastle. And of course, he wore very tight, as we all did in those days, very tight trousers and clothes, you know. Yeah. And so whatever happened with the start, I don't know, but it seemed to flick him harder. And he, he sort of staggered. He got onto this wooden piece and all the girls around it by the stage and looking up at him. And of course, his trousers are split underneath <laughs> from, from the front to the back. Yes. And as I say, the girls could all see his meat and two veg. <laughs> he probably didn't care. Oh, no. No, he did realise all of a sudden a draft must have come off or something. And he, That's he, funny. Da- he dashed off stage, you know, and uh, we kept going and he came back on again, you know. That's a spinal tap moment right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah, sure. Yeah. 
So Tony Visconti at some point calls you up and reintroduces you to your old friend. Who's that? Some guy named uh, Sir Paul something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, well, I've done a few other things uh, for Tony. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I played with loads of the rock bands, Mott the Hoople, and, uh, you know, there's loads and loads of them I played with. Uh, but uh, anyway, he called me up. He just said, uh, I've got some sessions uh, uh, with Paul. I think it was Abbey Road we were doing them. So he said, would, uh, would I like to come along and play, you know? Uh, of course, I said, no. <laughs> Not. <laughs> no, I didn't know. But anyway, I said, yeah, sure. A session, you know, just a recording session, whether right. it's Paul or whoever. Uh, there's another little thing there. I was living in London at that time, you know, so for some reason, I went to Air London Studios. AIR, you know, I've done loads of sessions there over the years, you yeah. know, and I walk up there and said, so where's uh, Paul's session today? He says, not here, mate. No. Oh. So, so where is he? And then there was a guy came and he said, he's at Abbey Road. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. And also jump into a cab and I get down to Abbey Road. And of course, the first number they had lined up was Jet. And they had the other saxophone players all sitting in the chairs waiting for me, you know. Oh, my God. How late were yes. you? Half an hour, something like that, you know. Feels like so, an eternity, though, when you're in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they were okay about it.
and it was like meeting up with Paul again and Denny because I knew Denny as well and then of course um, we got on with it we did Jet and then Paul asked me to stay behind yeah he said, I've got a couple of other tracks here. Would you like to do them? So I said, okay, you know, fine. And then we did Mrs. Vanderbilt and Bluebird. Your solo on Bluebird is, I don't know know what to call it, incredible. Uh, Thank you very much. I didn't didn't think so, because what happened was, it's a bone of contention for me, this. But uh, okay, he said, they've got this track, Bluebird. He said, we'll point out you and play solo there. I was listening to the tune coming through, and then I played the solo. And uh, they said, yeah, that'll do. I said, no, no, I was just running through. He said, no, no. He said, okay, you can. So I tried two other solos. Uh, Paul said, no, we'll have the first one. Right, that's great. But what's happened in recent years, well, quite a few years now, they didn't film any of that. None, none of those sessions for Band on the Room were filmed. Right. But everything after that was filmed, you know. Okay. And uh, another thing, it's me being a, an old git, but uh, you know how much I got for that album? How much? £30. What? That's it, £30. It's a session fee, the three-hour session fee. Yeah. So anyway, no matter. They asked me, it was about, a, I don't know, a month or more later. And the, the album was out by this time. Uh, and I got this call. Would I go to Abbey Road? And they wanted to make a film of me doing Bluebird, you know. So I said, yeah, okay. I was going to get paid for that. Yeah. So, okay. So I get down there. And of course, by this time, I, I've forgotten. I didn't have the record even, you know. So just let, let me hear it and uh, say, so is that a such and such a chord? And then Paul, he starts singing my solo to me. He comes out in the studio and stands next to me. There's photos of that. I've seen, the, I've seen this photo. footage you're talking about. I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So to all intents and purposes, it's Paul telling me what to play. And he tell you, that pisses me off no end because that's what people are going to think. Because I was in the studio on my own, first take, bump, and done, you know. I was probably drunk. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually not, because <laughs> it's another little thing. Is uh, When the filming part, you know, he's doing that. He said, would you like him to drink? I said, yeah, I could do with a beer. And he said to one of the roadies, John, he said, go and get a beer or whatever. My drinking capacity was well known. Still is, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he didn't have money. That was the thing. So, you know, the roadie had to get it. But when he came back, there was one little bottle of beer. <laughs> I'd, I'd worked with uh, John Entwistle from The Who, or done with The Who, and he said a beer, you got a crazy beer. Of or course. You know. You well, know. you got to do one little bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they were. Yeah. You know, yeah. They didn't know the value of things. Right, 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 right. Well, you mentioned The Who now. You played yeah. n- not on the 1969 album, but on the soundtrack for the Robert Stigwood film, Tommy. Yeah, I did. Uh, what was it now? Oh, God, there we go. Uh, I did two two tracks. There's Tommy, one on Tommy. Yep. And the other one's Quadrophenia. Was Quadrophenia the Who album or the movie soundtrack? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> well, was it, it when, when did you do it? In seventy four or seventy nine? You're asking a guy who's eighty three and I'm losing sorry. his marbles. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, the reason I got the Who gig yeah. is prior to that, I did a couple of albums for John Entwistle, The Ox. You know? Yeah, sure. 
in in living memory of rock and roll was one and uh, Mad Dog was the other. Yep. Uh, what it was, I saw a, a little comment in a musical paper that Pete Townsend was thinking he using live on tour a horn section. So I got onto it and I got onto uh, the ox and uh, and I said, uh, have a word, you know. So he did. And uh, so I got the horn section together to go on tour. And we did uh, you know, Britain, Europe and America, you know. That carried on for a bit, but I got the call to do Wings again at that period, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I was, to be honest, I was earning more money with the Who. But, you know, I liked the Wings setup. I went back to Wings. So they got a guy called, you probably know his name as well, Dick Parry. He yeah. did for me. Yep. Yeah, no. wasn't he on uh, Dark Side of the Moon? I think that's right. Yeah, yep, I think, yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the only thing is there when, when the uh, the Wings tour, whichever one it was, was over, the Who was still going out with the horn section. So I rang up Dick and said, "Hey, you know, can I get my gig back?" He said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> oh, you must have some stories about being on tour with the Who. Well, they weren't as wild as you thought. You know, I mean. It's it's a strange thing. On stage, there was that image, you know. And, uh, but really speaking, you know, there's lots of booze went on and various other things. I I've never been into drugs. That's one thing I would say, you know. Yeah. But I mean that that all sorts were going on, and and McCartney's, you know, Wings. Uh, that was all very. There was lots again, lots of wonderful things. You had food yep. after after the gig. You had lots of booze and whatever you like, you know. Yeah. And there was a bit of stuff going on there. I never bothered with it, but but you know, funny enough, the who yeah you, you expected it, you know. Yeah. And I don't know, uh, or maybe they didn't want the guys in the horn section to see how they really behaved. You know, I don't know, but uh, well, yeah, so very professional though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, 1978, Paul assembles this all-star band for one song, the Rockester theme, a huge supergroup. What was it? Obviously, everybody in Wings, two guys from The Who, two members of Zeppelin, Ronnie Lane, Gilmore, on and on and on. Tell me some memories from that session. Again, we were forewarned. There was nothing really for the horns to play on that. Uh, There were the two tracks he did, wasn't there? So Glad to See You and uh, Rockester. And, you know, the idea of Rockester was lots of musicians, like an orchestra. And it's great. Uh, all these well-known faces from the business. And I could tell with some of them, they were a little nervous because, you know, Paul McCartney, he's God almost, you know, to, to these people. And, uh, but, you know, he's very kind. He's like uh, making them uh, at home and feel relaxed and so on and so forth. Yeah. And uh, so, and uh, John Bonham, he had uh, Steve Holly one side, Kenny Jones the yeah, other. Yeah. And uh, he, he was looking after the drums, you know, because they were all, those two were in awe of him. Sure. Uh, and then, and on it went like that. And all these guitar players, you know, the, well, you name them, even Hank Marvin. I was, was just going to say that, Hank Marvin. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and then what they had in the studio, they had these screens inside the studio with little windows in them. So they had the cameras looking through these windows, yeah. you know. And uh, and it was great. It was nice a nice atmosphere, you know. Uh, so we went through the tracks and a couple of hiccups here and there, so we'll go through it again. And uh, that was all right. That was fine. So everybody went their way, you know, went about their business, as it were. Then I got a call from the office sometimes later to say something had gone wrong with the sound. They hadn't got all the all the, the sounds they wanted, you know. Mm. And they asked me if I could help out. So the horn parts are all right, but then there's a friend of mine who's a guitarist, a guy called Mark Jenner. He'd played with Cliff Richard and everybody. He did all the sessions, you know, for yeah. years. 
And so he came in the studio and he said, okay, we'll do so-and-so's guitar. And he'd get the sound for that guitar. And then, you know, somebody else's. It wasn't all of them, but I mean, I don't know, but I would think they recorded it as we were being filmed. Right. And then they, they would go to mix and so Right, on. right, right. And then they probably found, oh, you know, where's so-and-so's guitar? Where's that? It was patching up. Yeah, yeah. January 1980, the ill-fated Wings Tour of Japan. <laughs> For those who don't know, walk us through it. Yeah, well, I mean, again, what can you say? I, I think it's been well put about, but uh, the thing was, uh, what we did, everybody had split up after the last tour, and, you know, gone back to America, to, to Britain, to whatever, Australia, all different places, you know. And uh, so we got, all got the call. We're going off to do a tour in Japan. So I was flying out from Britain. Paul, Linda, they were in America. And then, of course, the rest of the horn players were in America, but different parts, you know, New Orleans and Texas. And uh, they were coming in on different flights. I flew out with Alan Crowder and a couple of other people, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we get there. We get to this nice hotel. I bought in the, the duty-free. Yeah, I bought a big box of cigars. So... 
the guys, the horn section, the rest of the horn section eventually arrived. And we all got into my room and had a bottle of whiskey or something. Yeah. So I passed around a drink each and then opened the cigars and there I go. And I was puffing out the cigar having a drink and so on. Then Alan Prouder came in the room and he's looking ashen faced. And I said, yeah, hello, Al, come on, have a drink, have a cigar, you know? Yeah. And he said, no, no. He said, Paul's been arrested. I said, come on, you know, we should take the piss up. Yeah, another, right, you know? right, right. Yeah, so, so come on, don't mess, you know. He said, I'm telling you, he's been arrested, he's in jail. So, you know, cigars were sort of dropping on the bottom left. Now they've got, jeez, what? And then tried to get the story. And, of course, you know the story because they had to go through customs. Yeah. Uh, because of previous stuff that had gone on. We were supposed to go there after Australia and we couldn't get in. The, in the first one. But anyway, so they'd welcomed him in and, and Linda in and welcome to Japan and mm. uh, very glad to see you, Mr. McCartney. And uh, so just as a formality, he had loads of cases, you know, luggage and stuff, all the kids' stuff, this stuff. And all that. Yeah. And a formality, we just want to look in one case, blow me. Which case did they open? Uh... The one with the big bag. And it was right on the top. Yeah, big what? plastic bag. I've seen it. Top. When I was a kid, I was thinking maybe he had a couple of joints that he stuffed in a shoe or something. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. thing was, uh, my God, like a pound of it or something. Yeah, yeah. What was he thinking? I don't know. Well, you see, that's the other thing. They're lovely people, but they do get that thing because everybody agrees with them all the time and lets them do what they like. Mm -hmm. And and it does it does affect people that, you know. Yeah. But anyway, the thing was, I, what they'd been doing, they'd been having a joint the night before. And all the cases were packed, and probably this was the last one. And not thinking, stick it in there, close the lid, you know. That's it, you know, they, they got caught. But there is um, a story, again, don't know, and I don't want to besmirch her name because I like Linda a lot. Right. But uh, it was the, the story that it was her who put it there because Paul never took care of anything to do with household duties or anything like that. Right, you know? right. So you can just imagine, she said, oh, the luggage, yeah, I'll just put there, you know. But he took the wrap, which was good uh, good of him, you know. Class, class. And then we were told, okay, there's nothing we can do. You've got to hang around the hotels in Tokyo. Uh, just hang around. Uh, don't go too far in case the call comes to leave. You know, as soon as we can sort it out, we'll be back on a plane, you know. And that's exactly what happened. I, th I don't know how long it was, possibly a week. Nine days. Nine days, was it? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we were wandering around Tokyo, this, that, the other, and then, you know, having a few drinks at the bar, blah, blah. And there was all sorts of big people were getting onto the Japanese government. Uh, Edward Kennedy was one of them that was mooted about, you wow. know, to try and uh, get the... And, of yeah. course, the Japanese had been insulted, basically, you know, when you think about it, because he'd been banned for smoking dope, not in Japan before, but the fact that he, he was noted for being arrested, I don't know, but... They didn't want him in the country, right. and then they, they let him in, and that happens. That's an awful that, thing for that, them. Uh, lost face, I hate to say, you know? lost face, and I can I can understand their point. Hundred yeah. percent. The call did come, and of course we're all bundled into the cars and whatever off to the airport. A uh, slightly dishevelled Paul <laughs> came on, and he came into the uh, it, what I call the uh, livestock class where we were, you know, the chickens and hens, and uh, <laughs> uh, so, and he was put in there. Of course, as soon as the door shut on the plane, off he went, you know, up to the first class, you know. But, uh, yeah, it, it could have been seven years. He told us, he said, 
it could have been away for seven years. Yeah. He said when he was in there, they allowed him a guitar, an acoustic, and uh, but there's no, the Japanese style is to squat, you know, not, not to sit on a chair, you know. So he's a squat in the cell with a couple of other Japanese blokes, you know, yeah. and play, play songs, you know. But so that was it. And then it wasn't too long after that that uh, things fell apart. Talk to me about Beatles at Wings. This sounds very interesting. Yeah, well, it's just, it's in the last couple of years or so, I've been going up to Liverpool every so often, the Beatles Fest, you know. I used to take a horn section up there. Then we'd play with all the different Beatles bands that wanted us, you know, or Wings bands that wanted us. And uh, so I thought, come on, you know, we can do this. So lots of great musicians down here where I live, you know. So we put together a band and more like the Wings thing. It was 10, 11-piece band, you know, with the four horns and uh, two of the girls played horns and did vocal backing, and there's another one did vocal backing, and so on and so forth. Uh, we put it together and then started doing gigs in the South, and then we did the Liverpool gig. We played the Royal Court Theatre with the band. It went down very well, and so on and so forth. And it's been going ever since, except just recently, of course, with the COVID thing. We had all sorts of gigs lined up this year, and it's a next year. Right. And, of course, they're all cancelled. Well, not by next year, but all the ones in this year are cancelled. Right. Know? So, but it's a, it's a great band. And you're using some of the same scores that you were using uh, for the second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got them all. <laughs> That's great. It's not a lookalike band because I don't even look like Harry Casey anymore, you know. So it's like, <laughs> Oddly I enough, I do. <laughs> you do, oh, do you? Oh, go Chris. figure. <laughs> <laughs>
That's Beatles with Wings, Howie Casey's new project, and I want to thank him for joining us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. That's amazing, man. The fact that he's continuing to keep that rock and roll spirit going. 83 years old is... He's seen a lot of history, I'll tell you that. Yeah, you know, the thing that's amazing to me, you know, listening is... He was present for all of that stuff percolating in Liverpool at the beginning. Yeah. You know? And not only um, that, then he goes with T-Rex at the beginning, which is, it wasn't so big over here, but in England, yeah. they were huge. That was a phenomenon. Since the Beatles, they hadn't seen anything quite that big in the pop world anyways. Then he goes on tour with the Hoover right after Keith Moon dies, the first tour. I mean, that's seen a lot of interesting things. Obviously, he, he was, you know, the right place at the right time. I mean, that's, that has a lot to do with it, you know. And obviously- Except in Japan. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> I guess so. That's another story. Uh, yeah, no, that's a fantastic story, obviously. But, yeah, you know, if, you, if you're rolling into the airport in Japan, you know, that's, that's definitely the apocryphal tale, you know. Uh, I don't, And I say it again. I don't know what the hell he was thinking. You know, you just get so used to being yes all the time yes whatever you want all your needs fulfilled that you kind of lose sight of the real world you know when you have reached that level uh, in music and just in life in general you know you, you probably are not thinking about you know what 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 might happen you know, right you're just you know this is just like normal operating procedure you know i'm gonna go on tour i'm gonna have what i want uh, not thinking about you know the fact that you might get like pulled aside you know, exactly you know, Howie's just such a nice man, just a good person. He actually texted me right after the interview was over. And he said, Don, I forgot to mention something. And by then, you know, the equipment was all broken down and put away. But he said, would you mind mentioning this anecdote? So if you'll indulge me for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I think he felt bad. He said, I don't want to give the wrong impression about Paul and Linda. They're great people. Matter of fact, in the 70s, him and his wife at the time, um, Howie's wife, Sheila, I think she's passed, um, were buying a house. And they asked for a small loan, I think it was 10,000 pounds, um, so they could put the down payment. Mm. So maybe a year went by, and Paul's money man at MPL, that's his company, called Howie and said, you know, you know when are you going to start repaying this loan? He said, well, geez, you know, I think they had hit on a little hot times. And he said, I'll have to sell the house to repay Paul, but tell him I'll, I'll do what I got to do. Mm. He hangs up the phone. 15 minutes later, it's Paul. Howie, I heard what you said. Let's let's just call it a gift and leave it at that. Wow. And he said, geez, you know, these people didn't have to do that. And he said, That that's no. that's the real Paul, you know? But I, that, I would I would never I would never pretend to judge certainly Paul McCartney, you right, know, right. for for you know, or anybody for that matter, you know, especially like I mean, you know, you know, he got caught with, you know, a bag of weed. I mean that doesn't necessarily make anybody a bad person. It just no. means that they smoke weed, and, and, and it shows a little bit of hubris, obviously. It's know? not the weed. It's the fact that when someone says, don't do something, you go, okay, and then you do it. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, you're not thinking of the crew and the band and all that. But Yeah. That, ex- yeah. But, yeah, you know, I mean, Paul McCartney, you know, is Paul McCartney. You know, he all the beauty that he's brought into our lives and and uh, it's nice to know that he is especially is a nice man on top of it all. And the fact that, you know, that, yeah, he did this this thing for uh, for Howie. Obviously, he yep. played on some amazing records. Uh, oh, my God. Know. I didn't even scratch the surface with that. You know, Martha Hoople. A lot of bands, a lot of bands. Well, I understand that you're a bit of an educator, your own self. 
Well, yeah. I mean, um, as part of what I've done all along, it has been to teach guitar lessons. That's always been a part of my income as a local regional musician, I suppose. Uh, taught lessons during the day and did gigs at night. And that, that has been how I, you know, made my living all these years. And, That's a great uh, way to keep your chops up too, by the way, teaching. You know, I've always said being a teacher has made me a better player. I mean, and anytime you teach anybody anything, you're, you're, you're giving somebody something, but you're, you're giving it to yourself too, just having to explain it. Sure. You know, and it may be things that you explain over and over again. Uh, you just become a stronger player. You know, you just you become better at your craft because you're having to reinforce fundamentals and and also learning new things. You know, your 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 students ultimately end up teaching you things, be they life lessons or about music maybe you didn't know about. I would say 2007, my wife and I, Amy, opened a, a music school, a private music school called String Theory School of Music, and uh, we're still at it. We've moved a couple of times over the years. We started off in East Lyme, Connecticut, and uh, we're now in New London, Connecticut. Two and a half years ago, our lease ran out where we were at in East Lyme. We were looking for more commercial real estate, a place that would welcome a business that made a lot of noise. And huh. we, we got, we, you know, we, we found that that was becoming increasingly more difficult here in our, our hometown. And, uh, I started looking in New London. Uh, I stumbled upon an old school building in New London it had been part of the New London school system, which they were looking to to sell. Schools are downsizing oh, yeah. smaller. Uh, school systems obviously built to accommodate the baby boomer generation. Right. And there's a lot less kids now. So right. subsequently, you know, the, this little neighborhood school, which used to be called the Little Red Schoolhouse, um, the school had sat vacant for five years and was had been vandalized the windows you know broken out and yeah. you know um and it had been built in the early 70s 1973 and it was an i think initially uh you know like a preschool neighborhood school and in recent years had been used for you know, the clinical day school so we come in and uh I approached the city, the RCDA, uh, which is the Renaissance Development Corporation, and uh, we negotiated a deal with them to to occupy the building, and uh, I had to renovate it. So I, I put a lot of money into renovating the building. We've been there for, like I said, you know, two and a half years. It's been great. It, it's you know, compared to what we had, it, it's just outrageous. I mean, it's you know, we have forty two hundred square feet. Give me the uh, idea of the age group, the span of ages that you're teaching. Um, it, it, it's from all the way from kids that are five, six, seven to people in their seventies right now. Oh, so um, it's not just children. No, no. I mean, I have, I have a lot of adult students actually, believe it or not. I'm running like, uh, four bands a week of adults. Uh, in addition to the private lessons, I have these ensemble groups that I teach, you know, I'm the coach, you know, and I have a, a Monday night rock band, a Tuesday night rock band, Wednesday I have a, a jazz ensemble, yep. Thursday another rock and roll band, and, you know, depending upon who's in the group, who's signed up for it, yep. you know, I might have to be the DH, you know, sure. play a little bit of bass, or maybe I'm uh, the drummer in another group, but essentially, you know, as the teacher, I'm filling whatever space needs to be filled. A big part of what our philosophy was and what 
why I wanted to start the school, Amy and I wanted to start the school, was, you know, we had ideas about what would constitute a great learning experience. And one of the things I was unable to do teaching privately for other people was to sort of bring it through to fruition, you know, to, to take somebody who's been in a private lesson, teach them how to play something or some aspect of their musicianship and get them into a room with other musicians and actually play their instruments and play a song, you know. That's that's essentially what we, we did, was we, we designed the school around getting people up to play, you know. And so we do a monthly, or at least pre-corona, we were doing uh, a monthly, what we call a coffee house. Yeah. It's, instead of, like, every six months doing a recital, you know, and, and just the word recital. You know, right, right. You know, yeah, it conjures elicit, up all sorts of it con- Yeah, it conjures up suits and sweat and all kinds of things <laughs> like that, you know. like You're just putting and, on shows. You're just doing a gig. Exactly. And 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 to, to do the frequent, have the more frequent opportunities to perform, I thought, was really going to be the thing that was going to help people with, you know, any sort of performance anxiety, stage fright, and just, you know, like actually – you know, look, you know, if you've spent the month working on a couple of songs in your lesson and you never get to play them with anybody, well, you know. Well, that's just so. it. When we were growing up, we took our lessons and then it was up to us to go find a band to play in. And if you didn't, half the time those lessons went to waste in a sense. I mean, you still got the knowledge, but, you know, you're never learning. Like you said, the, the most important part of being a good musician is being a good listener. And you can only do that when you're playing with other musicians. Yeah, I mean, it's like getting your driver's license and not actually getting to drive a car. There you go, yeah. We made that a major part of what we wanted to do if we had our own school. And my wife you know, is coming from, uh, you know, she's a high school social studies teacher. You know, she's got several degrees in, in education. And, is it just uh, the two of you or have you employed other teachers? Oh, we employ, yeah, other teachers most certainly. Um, yeah. uh, but she and I together are uh, the co-owners. Sure. And, you know, obviously, my skill set being a musician, playing professionally, and teaching lessons, and so on, and you know, all of what she knows about being a professional educator, we have complementary skill sets, and so it made it possible for us to do this. You know, like I said, we're going into our, we're in our thirteenth year. If someone's interested in your school, how can they get in touch with you and get all the information? The best thing to do is uh, look us up uh, online. Uh, we're strengththeoryschoolofmusic.com. Any inquiries can be sent to uh, strengththeoryoffice at gmail.com. Obviously, we'll answer your email right away. And um, uh, we have a really cool facility. Like I told you, you know, it's, it's 4,200 square feet. I obviously had to change what we were doing with the space to accommodate the pandemic and, and to make it COVID safe. And what I did was I bought a lot of plexiglass. <laughs> Sure. I, I, uh, you know, I spent a fortune on four by eight plexiglass sheets. Um, I constructed plexiglass walls and dividers uh, so that, you know, we can resume in-person lessons. So it's a safe environment. It's a fun yeah. environment. Yeah. Good for all ages, kids, adults. Now, what about the instruments? Is it everything from drums to, to brass or is it? It has changed over the years, depending upon who is on our staff. Um, we have right now, you can take guitar lessons, obviously, um, bass guitar, ukulele. Uh, we have piano instructors. We have um, a gentleman that sort of specializes in Americana uh, kinds of instruments. You know, I say Americana, I'm talking like, 
he works at the Mystic Seaport, and he has a degree from Wesleyan in this particular sort of subgenre of music. I mean, mm. he plays the fiddle and oh, yeah. accordion and plays guitar um, and mandolin and banjo. And once again, if you want to get more information about the school, it's www.stringtheoryschoolofmusic.com. And I want to thank Chris Lee for doing such a great job today. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Really appreciate oh, it. Thank you, Don. Uh, thank Howie Casey. And if you want to hear more about our show, we are at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. It's another long website name. We are also on Facebook, and we are now on Instagram. Lots of naked pictures of me. Don't let that dissuade you from joining. Chris, we're going to say goodbye with one of your own songs. So why don't you set it up and tell me what we're going to hear. All right. Well, this was uh, recorded in uh, 2013. Really my first uh, blues rock CD that I, I ever did uh, with a couple of friends. And uh, the song is called Who Knew? Like I said, I wrote it in 2012, 2013. I thought it was a kind of prescient thing in today's day and age. So I'm going to go that's... look up that word. <laughs>